You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. So what is it that makes you happy? Like, do you know what it is that makes you happy? All right, do me a favor. I want you to kind of talk to the person next to you. If it's like a family member, a spouse, or friend, just say, hey, what's up, homie, or honey, whichever applies. And uh, if it's somebody you don't know, just say, hey, real quick, hey, my name is such and such. Ready? Go ahead. What is it that makes you happy? Tell them. Go ahead, real quick. All right, make sure they get to talk. All right, you got it? How many of you said football? Why do you laugh? I think that's a great answer. If I were to group everybody in the room into different camps or groups based off what you said, my guess is uh, we'd find some similar groups pretty quickly. Somebody might say, yeah, you could put all these together, maybe like your motorcycle, man, that's your, you just go out riding on a nice day like today, and that's where you find your, your happiness. Or maybe you'd say, for me, it's like walking in the woods or climbing mountains, like that's where you find your, your happy place. Uh, you might say like my house or my car, maybe like a new pair of heels. That's just for the guys in here, whatever. And... Um, so whatever it is, you might say, there'd be a big group of us who would say something like, most days, my kids. Most of us, not everybody, clearly would say, my family. Some people might say their job or whatever it is. But here, here's the thing. Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? You're like, well, that just got real depressing real fast. Why aren't we talking about the happy things? You know, that's one of those kinds of quotes that you'll see like Buddha says or Gandhi says, Jesus says. And what we tend to think of when we think of that is we tend to think of like this person, you know, you see a picture in the background, right? And it's got somebody sitting on a beach and they're sipping on some sort of non-alcoholic beverage and uh, they're staring at the ocean and the sun is setting and you're like, oh, that looks so peaceful. And it's like, Jesus says, what does a prophet of man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And you read that and you think, I need a vacation. Like, this is the greatest selling job I've ever heard. Thank you, Sandals. Like, but here's the thing. Jesus didn't mean you need a vacation. What Jesus means is everything that we chase that is not God will eventually lead to our destruction. And what would it profit if you were to fill your heart with things that make you happy? It could be family. It could be friends. It could be anything. And yet lose your soul. Well, we may like, hear that and think, eh, okay, whatever, serious, depressing guy. But there was actually a really big story about that earlier this year. There's a famous man. His name is Tim Bergling. And most of you probably don't know who Tim is. But Tim is world-renowned at this point because in, he was a, he's been an, uh, an artist for a very, very, very long time. And a DJ, really, more than a musician. I guess it's still music, but not the way we tend to think of it. And uh, he created a song with some others that made him extremely famous. I mean, he hit it big time. In fact, he was the fastest ever to have 100 million views or listens on Spotify. He was the most listened to song on Spotify in February 2014. I believe since then he's been surpassed. But his one song was so big that he was the first to surpass two. 100 million listens on Spotify. In fact, if you were to look up his song today on YouTube, you'd see his song has 1.6 
billion views, which is only a few more than my sermons every week. Does anybody know what his stage name is? Avicii. And he wrote a song called Wake Me Up. And here is that chorus, if you want to call it that, ah, to that song. It goes like this. So wake me up when it's all over, when I'm wiser and I'm older. All this time I was finding myself and I didn't even know I was lost. And you're all singing now. Some of you are like, I don't know what that song is. You probably heard it when you were sitting at a local restaurant or maybe watching a sporting event. You just didn't know what you were listening to. It's a fascinating, fascinating song full of all kinds of meaning, I think, for our day and age today. That we're searching for something, but we don't know what it is. We don't even know we're lost. Like, we're living life. We're living it up. But there's just something in life that's not clicking. And the reason all this came to the forefront is because earlier this year, uh, Tim killed himself. And shortly after Tim killed himself, his family put out this statement. They said this, our beloved Tim was a seeker, a fragile artistic soul searching for answers to existential questions, an overachieving perfectionist who traveled and worked hard at a pace that led to extreme stress. When he stopped touring, he wanted to find a balance in life to be happy and be able to do what he loved most, music. He really struggled with thoughts about meaning, life, happiness. He could not go on any longer. He wanted to find that ever-elusive thing, peace. Here's a guy who found what made him happy, chased it till he was worldwide famous, one of the most popular songs worldwide of all time. And yet miserable. A couple years ago, he pulled himself off tour. Drugs and alcohol and stress were ruining his body. His body was literally shutting down and rebelling against him. He was chasing after so many things, but no matter how hard he chased, he still couldn't find what it was he was looking for. It led to his death. You know what's really sad is his family actually just came out in the last week or so and uh, made this statement that they believe that if he had a better managing company, that he never would have ended up here in the first place. First, they're just grieving, right? They're they're grasping at straws. They could be absolutely correct in that assessment. I have no idea. But I find it fascinating that their assessment of their son's life is if their son had a different set of community, if he were surrounded by a different set of people, he would not be in the situation today. How about you? Do you have the right community of people surrounding you, encouraging you, pushing you, challenging you in all the ways that you need? See, what we know is this. Jesus was trying to build something when he was building a church. It was a community. Actually, the word church means the gathering. And the idea was we would be driven by certain principles like truth and grace and forgiveness and mercy and love. And when all these things come together in like this, you know, melting pot stirred together, what you find is the perfect place for community to take place. Because in that kind of community, when it's actually practiced, when it's actually lived out, when you blow it, it's not the end of the world. And when you blow it, you don't have to hide. Instead, you're accepted for who you are and what you've done, but you also are loved enough not to leave you there. Because as much as I don't like admitting it, my wife has issues. I mean... I have issues, and I need people in my life who love me enough to point them out to me. 
That's where the truth part comes in. But then they embrace me in grace and they embrace me in love. They don't leave me where they found me, but they don't judge me and condemn me either. And when that is balanced and played out well in life, what happens is there's a safe place for me to walk through life together and receive the correction and the feedback and the wisdom I need to do life better. What I wanna do now is I'm gonna take you on a journey through a story in the Bible. And uh, if anybody, if you've been here for any length of time, if you're watching online, you've listened to me before, you know that I tend to not like the direct route, which is funny because like when I'm actually traveling somewhere, I want the fastest, most direct route, unless it leads to lots of traffic, then I'll take the longest route possible to get there. But on this journey, and when I'm preaching, I tend to like the trip to grandmother's house through the woods, you know, over the river and that kind of thing. Like, I like to kind of meander away and look around and the, hey, look at the roses and the trees and drive some people nuts. They're like, I have no idea where we're going. And then we come out of the woods. It's like, oh, grandma's house. Why didn't you just say so? You know, there was a more direct route there. I'm like, yeah, but it wasn't as pretty. So this is going to be that way. And we're going to kind of go through the woods. And we're going to enjoy the scenery. And then we're going to pop out and go, hey, look, this is what we really need to look at this morning. So what I want you to do is turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 11. And in John chapter 11, while you're turning there, it'll be on the screen if you know how to use it. If you have a Bible in front of you, if you want to download an app real quick, you can get it there. But in John chapter 11, what we see is this. Jesus is out doing his ministry stuff. He's teaching, he's healing, he's doing all those Jesus-y things. And while he's doing that, a messenger comes to him and says, Jesus, Lazarus needs you. Now, Lazarus and his two sisters, so Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, they're a family. They're brothers and sisters. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Lazarus is sick, and not just like, hey, I got the flu, but like, I've got something extremely bad, whatever it is, and it's probably going to kill me. So the sisters send word to Jesus, Lazarus is sick, we need you to come and do that thing we've watched you do for so many others, to heal him. Jesus is roughly two miles away. He looks at the disciples and he says, we need to go soon, and we need to go to Lazarus' house, we need to heal Lazarus but not yet. And the disciples go, Jesus, why in the world would you go there? Last time you went there, they tried to stone you. Remember that? They tried to kill you. This isn't like marijuana stone. This is like they pick up rocks and throw them out to you till you die. And Jesus said, like, Jesus, okay, moving on before I get sidetracked. That's not the path in the woods we're taking today. <clears throat> That's on a different path. And Jesus looks at him and says, now Lazarus has fallen asleep. And the disciples, because they don't get it, like a lot of times we don't get it, they look at Jesus and they go, big deal, if he's sleeping, that's good. That means he'll rest. And and when you're sick, rest is best. That's what Daniel Tiger tells us. And so Jesus, like, let him keep sleeping. And the three people with kids in the room who are little understand what I'm talking about. And uh, he'll be okay. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. See, the Bible often refers to sleep as death. There's a reason that is really relevant to today's text. Now, that sets you up for everything you need to know. Let's pick up John chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 17. John 11, verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. This isn't like a metaphor for a hospital or, you know, a sauna. This is, he's dead and laid in a tomb for four days. So not only did Jesus not show up on time but he showed up four days later than on time. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Now, this is important because basically two miles, even if I walk slow on foot in sandals in ancient times, you need to get two miles is still two miles. I mean, the, the absolute slowest Jesus probably got to get there is 30 minutes or so. That's it. 
Jesus could have been, he could have wrapped up what he was doing and taken two or three hours. He had plenty of time to get there. The Bible does such a great job of giving you a ton of information and very little space. Maybe one day I'll practice that. But for now, we're in the woods and Jesus didn't show up on time and that's extremely relevant. Look at what happens next. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. So there's no way for me to help you get this because there's nothing in our community that will help you get this picture, right? Your neighborhood, my neighborhood, doesn't matter where you live, it doesn't look like this. Uh, I think the closest glimpse I've ever got to what this would have looked and felt like is when I went to India and visited our missionaries, Care India, over in the Chennai and in the surrounding villages a couple hours away. When you go out to the villages, you literally will pull up on like a dirt road, literally a dirt road, kind of go through Nowheresville, and then you kind of come up on a community of people and you could tell because it's kind of cleared out. Now, that area of the world is definitely more, has more trees than where Jesus was in the Middle East. But nevertheless, you picture you're coming along the main road. You're not coming up any back road. There's some sort of gate or some, something outside that says this is the town where they are. So they come up to the town and Jesus stays there. And word travels out to Martha that Jesus is there. And she drops everything, leaves all the grieving people behind, runs out to Jesus, and then says this. And this is one of the most beautiful and profound conversations in all of Scripture. And if you aren't familiar with the Bible, you just need to know this. In other texts, we learn this. Martha, the sister Martha, she's kind of a task-oriented person. Mary, the other sister, who we'll see in a few moments, she's more of a relational-driven person. But in this moment, Martha runs up. Lord, Martha says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. What's going on? Martha, like many of us, has come to the place where she's making peace with God. We're not today talking about suffering. Today we're talking about something different. But if the day comes, and I hope it does come next year, this is a phenomenal text to look at on suffering. Because one thing you need to understand as it relates to God and suffering is God doesn't always give us what we want. He doesn't always give it to us in the way we want it. And he doesn't always do it in the time frame we'd hope. Know what I'm talking about? In fact, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because this is why you've been angry at God for a long time. Like, why won't God do what I'm asking him to do when I'm asking him to do it the way I'm asking him to do it? And what we learn from this story, so all I'm gonna do today is scratch the surface a lot, just enough to irritate you and hopefully make you cry out to God rather than yell and scream at him, cry out to him. But what we learn in this story, just so you'll see it as we go, is that God is always putting his own glory on display and he's using your story and he's using you to do that. So Mary is full of both frustration and faith. It's both in one, and you hear both. You need to read it as both. She's frustrated. Lord, if you had been here, I know you could have healed him. I mean, I, I heard the story about when you calmed the storm when you're out in the lake, and I heard the time about Peter walked on water, and I heard about the time when you uh, fed an entire 5,000 group of people with just fish and loaves and just story after story. I know what you can do. You could have healed Lazarus. She's frustrated. God puts his big boy pants on every single day. He can handle this. But at the same time, she has faith. And even though I know you could have done this, I know even now God will do whatever you ask of him. But Jesus goes further. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Jesus just kind of absorbed her frustration and just told her, your brother will rise. 
Now, Martha is a woman of faith. She doesn't doubt that. See, there are two major camps in that day related to resurrection. The two major camps come from the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And one camp says, when you die, that's it. There's nothing else after that. The other camp says, no, there will be a resurrection from the dead, and God will judge the dead. And they didn't know a lot more than that. But these two camps would fight all the time. They were fighting about divorce. They'd fight about remarriage. They'd fight about everything under the sun. They just loved to fight, 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 fight about religious things. This, she clearly comes from the camp that believed in a resurrection. And she had verses in her mind. I remember when the Bible says this in Exodus and this in Isaiah. And I remember these things. That's why I have this belief. In fact, she goes on and she answers in verse 24. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So she has this faith. I know, I know, I know. I know that when you die, you aren't fully dead. Your spirit, whatever, will lay there and however that works. And one day we'll all rise again. And Jesus goes further. And you need to see this. Because see, some of you visiting today or watching online, you're not sure about this Jesus guy. You're just like Martha. Like, I get it. I think I believe. I'm not sure. I got questions. But I got enough to kind of be in the game. But see, what Jesus does is he cuts right through all the mess and all the confusion and all the darkness, and he shines a bright spotlight into Martha's story. What you need to know is Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Bible. Everything in the Old Testament points to him. Everything in the New Testament tells us what he did and how he is a fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. Everything is pointing to Jesus. This is huge. Because Jesus' response to her is simply this, I am the resurrection and the life. That's huge. Because what he's not saying to her is he's not saying, I have the power to raise you from the dead on the last day. He's not saying, oh yeah, and when we all raise from the dead, I'll be there with you. No, he's saying, it's me. I am the resurrection and the life. Me, I am. And then it goes even further. And the one who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Maybe you didn't get what that means. What Jesus is trying to get to is that when you put your faith and your hope, your belief in Jesus, everything that is Jesus comes true for you. So now what we have, when we have that happen, is we are now becoming like Jesus Christ in our daily lives, in our daily living. And the more we become like Christ, the more the life of God becomes alive and real inside us. And he looks at Martha and he says, do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe it? And I think that question would be so profound for you and for me today. Do you believe it? Well, Martha's response is beautiful. Her response is, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. This is almost word for word what Peter says. At one point, Peter is asked by Jesus, who do people say I am? Peter responds, well, some say you're Elijah, some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets, and Jesus just cuts to the chase. Peter, okay, whatever everybody else thinks, I don't care. What do you think, Peter? Peter's response is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, the word Christ is Greek, the word Messiah is Hebrew. They both mean the same thing. They both mean the anointed one. The one who's been foretold about for hundreds, even thousands of years. The one in whom all the prophecies come true. The one whom God has sent. But see, both their statements go beyond simply, you're a good man, you're a prophet, you're a fulfillment of prophecy. No, they go even further and they say, you are, both say, you are the son of God. And that's huge. They become even bigger later in the story. 
But it lets us know Jesus, and as the King James says, he is the only begotten of God. He's the only one who comes from God because he is God in the flesh. See, belief means accepting God for who he is. Believing who God says he is, who he has revealed himself to be in Jesus. I basically just summarized all of last week for you. Now we're gonna start the sermon. See, we're deep in the woods. I'm just kidding. We're on our way, well into the woods at this point. However, I do wanna summarize what I said to you last week. Basically, I added a little word, but I said this. Our connection to God begins when we move from hurting to hungry and eventually to whole. And what I mean by that is this. See, life is hard for all of us. In the chapter right before this, in John chapter 10, we're in John 11, in John 10, Jesus says this, the enemy, and he's referring to those spiritual enemies that we can't see, but the Bible affirms are real. We call him Satan, but he has many minions, demons that work with him. Our enemy comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come to bring life. And the New Living Translation says, life that is really life. In other words, all those things that you're searching after to bring you happiness and meaning and peace, no matter what, when you get them, have you noticed they go right through your fingers? Doesn't matter how nice your house is, how nice your car is, how nice your clothes are, doesn't matter how many friends or how much popularity or money or how many downloads or listens on Spotify or YouTube you get, it doesn't matter. When you're chasing the wrong thing, you end up in the wrong destination every single time. And so when we move from hurting to hungry, we start to pursue God. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, and anybody who hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with them. And when we do that, we find ourselves finally fulfilled. Instead of just eating sugar, and we never find it really scratching the itch for our deep hunger, we find ourselves being satisfied. And see, what's really cool is last week, Seven people responded to that, and some were planned, but some weren't. And in faith, we had seven people unite with Christ in baptism last week. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Love that. Let's jump into our story. Now, what what Jesus says then, he says, Martha, I want you to go back, and I want you to grab your sister Mary. Tell her to come out here. Jesus stays outside. I think there's a couple reasons Jesus did. Number one, he's trying to honor the grieving of these two ladies as they're grieving the loss of their brother. But number two, I think Jesus is struggling. So Mary comes running out, and she falls at his feet, and she kneels down before him, and she says, Lord, she says basically what Martha says, but only part one, not part two. Lord, if you had been here, if only you had been here, I know my brother wouldn't have had to die. Well, there's frustration and faith mixed in that, right? I just know if you had come, we sent in time, you could have been here. You could have saved him. I'm frustrated, but I believe in you. And then it says in verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Now, this phrase, once more deeply moved, is a profound phrase because it doesn't exactly mean what we read in English. There are strong connotations in the Greek that this is uh, more like deep-seated emotion, irritation, frustration, possibly even anger. Some, and I completely disagree with them, some have hypothesized that Jesus is angry at the doubts going on, say, in Mary and Martha and others around him. I don't think that's it at all. In fact, we get the shortest verse in the entire Bible right here in this section. Anybody know what it is? Jesus wept. Many of you heard it before. And the connotation behind wept is that Jesus trickled a little tear. He was sad. Oh, how sad. No, the whole idea is Jesus loses it. Like men, it's okay to cry. Jesus cried. You don't get it tougher than Jesus. It's all right to cry. 
He loses it, and I think he loses it, and I think the text tells us this, for two reasons. Number one, he's overcome with emotion. His friend has died. His friends are hurting, and he's hurting with them because Jesus is human while still God in the flesh. But the other side of this is he's ticked, and he's not ticked at their questioning. They don't understand. Jesus is unbelievably patient when his disciples don't understand. He's ticked because death is ruining his creation. And in the garden, when he made Adam and Eve, they were naked and had no shame. They ran around and there was no hiding from God or each other. And then one day they sin and they go hiding in the bushes. They start taking fig leaves and covering themselves. And eventually God takes animal. That's the first death we see in the entire Bible. And God kills an animal and covers them with skin. Because now it's a game changer. And he tells them, now in dying, you will surely die. And the whole, it's a, it's, a, it's a strong statement of now there will be death on this creation. This is not the way it was intended to be. And Jesus is livid. Satan is winning. But not for long. Verse 39. The Lord said, Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor for he's been there four days. I don't think there's a translation of the New Testament that does any better on this text than the King James. Because the King James says, um, Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> I just think that ought to be your next tattoo. <laughs> if somebody asks why, you could just say, John 11, let me tell you the story. Uh, Jesus, he's gonna stink. So I don't know, what's the stinkiest thing you've ever smelled, right? You've smelled some stinky stuff before and you thought to yourself, man, that smells like death. And you've said that before. I, I, I told a story that was way too long last service, so I'm gonna summarize it, which is two bags. I think the longer version's funny, but it's not helpful. My wife and I went to dinner at a local restaurant. It was a date night. We were running a little late. It took longer than we thought it would take. And we wanted to do dessert. So we stopped by, got dessert, and we're just gonna go home and put it in the freezer, sneak it in, not let the kids see, and then eat it after they went to bed, like any good parent would do. Except for we took the leftovers from the meal and we put it in the car. We were only inside for like 15, 20 minutes. By the time we came back out to the car, we opened the car doors and death came out of the car. And I'm looking at my wife. I'm like, is that what we just ate? That is terrible. But it was amazing food. It was just this stench in our car. We threw it away, threw the leftovers away. I'm like, I'm not taking that home. I'm like, smell like death in my freezer. People are wondering if I'm hiding bodies in there again. And um, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I wouldn't say that publicly. Okay, so whatever the worst thing you've ever smelled is, it's nothing like death. Decomposing, decaying body. So many cultures in the world would, would uh, not do what we do with embalming where you kind of drain out the fluids and pump this other junk inside there to keep the body around long enough for us to see the body and honor the person. And it, it's kind of weird if you think about it, like one of the few cultures in the world that have ever done that in history. But what they would do, like Egypt and other places, they would, they would sometimes take out the brain or the innards and then they would like put all these mummification systems and processes in place to try to preserve things as long as possible. But the Hebrew people typically would wrap in cloth really tightly and wrap it in a bunch of spices. The goal wasn't to preserve the body. The goal was to overcome the smell. Are you with me? Because it was so stanky. We're four days in. Lazarus' body is in a cave where it's moist and damp. It is the perfect environment for decay to take place. 
And Mary's only saying what everybody else is thinking. The problem is she still has no concept for just what Jesus is capable of. Verse 40. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? In some ways, this is a test of faith, but in another way, it's a setup. It's a, what we call forward in communication. Uh, he is about to predict what he's about to do. This is a little bit funny because it's like, Jesus, you told us you would see the glory of God. You didn't tell us what you were going to do next. So they finally are like, I don't know how you argue with this guy. Like, just move the stone. Like, just do it already. So they take the stone away. And then look at verse 41. Then Jesus looked up, and this is crucial. You got to get what's going on here. And he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. In other words, in modern day, like Matt Nickerson translation, Jesus just said, Father, I know where I stand with you. I know that I am your one and only, your begotten son. I know that I came from you. I know that I am you here on earth. I know that. I know that. And God, I'm settled in our relationship. I'm settled in my identity with you. I know that you're listening to me. I know that you're watching me all the time. I know that, and I'm good. So, Father, I'm having this conversation just so everybody else can hear the kind of relationship we have so that they'll know where what's about to happen came from. It's not me. It's not demonic. It's you in me. See, this is huge. See, in order for you to truly understand who Jesus is, you must accept that he is the son of God. I got a letter this week, an encouraging note from a, a girl who had to move and watches most of our services online. She's named it will be here now every Sunday. She says, so when I first came to Kingsway, according to her letter, she said, uh, most of the time you would speak and I would think, that doesn't make sense, that can't be true. I don't know if I believe that, I don't know about that. She said, then somewhere along the way I came to faith, now I listen to you preach, Matt, and I think, yeah, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that. See, and I get it. See, what I'm about to tell you, what I'm about to read to you next, you're gonna hear it and you're gonna go, Really? Do you think I'm so stupid that I believe that? See, this is what's wrong with Christianity. This is what's wrong with the Bible. But let me tell you in just a moment why I believe this is what's right with Christianity and this is what's right with the Bible. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and cloth around his face. Some of you are sitting there going, whatever. I know, I get it. I've been there. I've thought the exact same thing myself at one point. But just wrestle with this, okay? So I realize this probably won't convince you of anything, but just, just think about this, okay? Just wrestle with this. How else do you explain it? Oh, you've got some options, okay? Somebody made up the story and spread a, spread a rumor. Uh, it was a concocted plan. Maybe it's not made up, but maybe there was a tr trick to fool everybody. So they wrap Lazarus up like he's dead. They call everybody out to grieve. They put him in the grave. They put some food in the tomb so that he can eat for a few days. Maybe they even put some stuff in there that stank really bad or something, you know. And there's a problem with both of those. They're eyewitnesses to this whole story. This would have been the easiest lie of all time to shoot down. This would have been so easy to just go into town and say, hey guys, was anybody there that day? Yes, what happened? Tell me the story and to find the inconsistencies and the made up parts. The problem is they couldn't. In fact, we learn from continuing to read John 11 and 12 and on 
that one of the major reasons that Jesus gets crucified is because people are getting mad. The people with power are mad because people start believing the stories about Lazarus because they're talking Cousin Eddie or whoever it is, and they're like, you know, he's crazy, but they're going, but dude, he was telling us he was there that day and what he saw, and I was thinking, no way, that's not possible, and then I went and talked to this neighbor of mine that I work out with at the gym. Her name is, you know, Susie or whatever, and Susie was there too, and she said the exact same thing that crazy Cousin Eddie said, and those two can't stand each other. There's not one historical document of a person that was there that day saying it didn't happen. It'd be so easy to just shut this down. Just bring up somebody who was there who said it didn't happen. But there isn't anybody. So you could just not believe it, but you gotta figure out how you're gonna explain it. So Jesus says to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And we're finally standing at grandmother's door. We've taken this long journey just to end up at this place. Why? Well, I want to show you a picture. This comes from an artist. If I'm saying his name right, his name is Matty Preddy. He's from the 1650s, so it's an old one. And this, and this you know, looks old, and I know it's hard to see what's going on here, but Jesus here with his hand up, because Jesus did things like that, I don't know why. And you've got Lazarus, who's um, thankfully still has some of his uh, burial clothing on, and this gentleman who looks like a squid, but I don't understand that. So this gentleman here is the one that I want you to focus on. So this gentleman here is looking at his friend Lazarus. Lazarus appears to be looking at Jesus. Jesus is looking at the Father. And this man's left hand, which you can hardly make out right here, is gently holding up Lazarus' legs. And his right hand is gripping these uh, ropes that have bound Lazarus as his garment, the burial garment, is wrapped around. Now, this is 1,600 years after this event or more. So... This isn't what it really looked like. This is just an artist's rendering. But what I love about this moment is the beauty of community. In a book called The Lazarus Life, a guy named Stephen Smith makes a wonderful point about this. He says this. We cannot underestimate the importance of this kind of tenderness in community. Despite all the ways others can hurt us, we need one another in order to move forward in the spiritual life. In the story of Lazarus, Jesus did not do what community was meant to do. Jesus asked the community to take the grave clothes off Lazarus. He asks us to do the exact same thing within our own communities and families and groups. This is one of the greatest purposes of Christian community to show up for each other and to reach out and help one another in the process of being transformed. It takes community for this to happen. No one can untie his or her own grave clothes. Great book, highly recommended. But here's the point. Jesus took Lazarus from death to life in a moment. Come out! But it took a community of people to untie the thing that Lazarus was still wearing that represented his death. 
What we learned in the garden is the moment that we sinned and rebelled and ran away from God, we all started putting on clothes to hide from each other, and we still do it today. Remember that thing I asked you? What is it that makes you happy? We all do this. And when it starts to come to things that make us happy, man, my kids better look really, really good. They better perform really, really well because I need to play a part. It's the grave clothes that I wear for everybody else. I got to keep my house nice. I got to keep my stuff together because it's the grave clothes I'm wearing in front of everybody else. I got to look like I have it together. I never make a mistake. I don't have any errors. My pride isn't a problem because it's the grave clothes that I wear in front of everybody else. Meanwhile, I stinketh. Here's the thing that I think is profound in this moment when Jesus says this. So one of the major things I think is going on is Jesus is connecting the olfactory system. If I'm saying that right, it's the part where you smell and it's this whole like ear, nose, throat thing going on. This whole system, he's connecting it for those in the community. See, Jesus took rotty, stinking body up to a live body in a moment. However, the grave clothes would have reeked of spices and death. The cave would have reeked. Nobody near the cave that day could have forgotten what they smelled. And yet they're responsible for unwrapping the death to bring out the life. That's why God created the church. The church is supposed to be the community where we unwrap the death and bring out the life in each other. And you know what? You can't do that by sitting in a service only on Sunday morning. It's not possible. It takes getting into the lives of other people who are a lot like you and not at all like you and finding out where your blind spots are. You know why they're called blind spots? Because you don't know where they are. If you knew where your blind spots were, we wouldn't call them blind spots. You've got parts of your character, parts of your personality, parts of ways that you sin and want to hide and run from everybody else. And Jesus is trying to create community. People's like, you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to run anymore because here there's more than enough grace. There's more than enough mercy. There's more than enough love, but there's also a whole lot of truth. And it's that perfect blend of those things stirred up together that makes the church unique. This is why around here we have a phrase. We call it community. Community simply means this. We love one another. We share life and serve together in relationships that honor Christ around his truth and encourage one another as a support network during life's challenges. Do you have a community? Do you have a group of people at Kingsway that are walking you through life's challenges? Because if you don't, we want to help you find that. But it's going to take you humbly accepting others into your life and humbly walking into the lives of others. Okay, do me a favor. You're going to see these colorful cards sitting in front of you. We're not going to talk today about the invite one. We'll talk about that some other time. We're not going to talk today about the give one, although if you would like to, we won't argue. And we won't talk today about the serve one. We've talked a lot about that. Again, I would love for you to plug in a serving. I want to talk about this red one. We just do me a favor and pull it out. If there's enough around you, just grab one. Just so you can look at it. You can put it back. You can do anything with it. It's fine. It'll look like this, but I know you can't really read that. It's too small. This Connect card is just our opportunity to help you plug in. And there's really two great ways to use this card. So it will take you as long as it takes to write your phone number, your last name, your phone, and your email. We will not bug you. We have no desire to bug you. But if you want to get connected, we're going to need a little bit of information from you. We don't want to annoy you. We're not going to spam you. But we're just looking to get you connected. So if this is your first time, maybe your first few times here, and you really haven't let us know that you're here, this would be a great way to take that next step and say, you know what, I want to go beyond just life. I want to go beyond, and I want to get into the community of faith. Just 
Put your name on there and kind of fill that out, and then here's what you do. If this is your first few times here, maybe a month or two, whatever it is, and you'd never let us know you're here, you go ahead and walk right out these front doors here, and you're gonna turn around. There's a welcome counter behind you. You take this to them and say, hey, I'm new to Kingsway. New doesn't have to mean first time. I'm new to Kingsway, and we got a little gift from you. It's my autograph. You can't sell it on eBay. I'm just kidding. That's not my autograph. We have a better gift than that. And uh, just say, hey, I, I got, I, I'm new. Help me out. And that's it. That's all you have to do. That's your first step. Maybe you've been here for a while, six months, a year, two years, three years, and you've been sitting on the sideline watching life take place in others, and you're like, I want to get connected and get into the body. I just want you to take the same card. You go to this side of the wall, the connect hub. So one says welcome, one says connect. And you just walk up and you say, you know what? It's time. Last week, I met a young couple. I've talked to them a few times, but I kind of got into the story a little. I misunderstood them. They've been married for a little over a year. I think they said 13 months or so. And I said, oh, man, that first year for some people is really rough. How are you doing? They're like, we're doing fantastic. I said, great. Can I get you connected to our marriage ministry? They're like, but we're doing great. I'm like, exactly. Because see, most people come to us, it's too late. They've already said things they can't unsay, and they've already done things they can't undo. This is perfect. So if we get you the marriage coaching you'll need now, then if things ever go sideways, you've already got the training and the relationships with people here to know how to work through it. They walked with me up to the connect counter. I went to the people in the purple shirts and lavender shirts, depending whether they're guy or girl, and I said, here you go. Can you help this couple out? They said, yes. They took their information and they're gonna get them plugged in. See how easy that is? Last week, we had 20 people show up at our connect counter looking for information. And two weeks ago, before we was official, we didn't have this launched yet, we had eight people. That's 28 people in two weeks and I think that's cause for celebration. Yeah. But you could need divorce care. You could need a life group. You could need connecting into service. Whatever it is, as Todd said so well earlier, your job isn't to know what it is you need to do next. You're not, your job is just to take the next step and say, you know what? I just know that I want to get connected. I know that I don't want to do life alone anymore. And then we'll take you from there. So here's what I want to do. Right now, we're going to connect with God in communion. And we're gonna go into this communion time and uh, depending on what you're dealing with right now, you may need to talk to God about some prayer need going on in your life, in your home, for a friend or a family member and you're just gonna lift that up to him right now. If you are in a place where you've got something you need to wrestle with, I just want you to spend this time praying. I'm gonna start a prayer and I'm just gonna say amen and walk off stage and you keep praying and then when the communion comes, you take the bread and the juice. But let me not miss an opportunity to say this. At the end of every single service, there'll be a team to my left, your right. They'll be wearing those purple shirts. They are ready to help you. If today you are ready to connect with God and unite with him in baptism or even just say, I don't know what it means. I don't know where I am in the process. I don't know what I need to do next. Help me. They will help you. At the end of every service, you could come right down here, my left, your right, and just talk to them and say, help me, help me. If you need prayer, you could come to them and say, help me, help me. If you're struggling in your marriage, you can come to them and say, help me, help me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Lazarus. We thank you for what you did in his life and the way it testifies about Jesus today to us. God, sometimes, um, sometimes you confuse us. We don't know what you're doing or why you're doing it. We can't see the path. But God, it's in those moments that we have to have true faith. We have to depend and trust that you can and you are and you will take care of it. So God, thank you for being God. Because I know that if any, single, any of us in here were God, we'd mess it up. We've messed up so many things already. We just need you to be God. God, just give us that peace that we're searching for right now, that, that breath of fresh air, that breath of life that says you came to give us life. 
Father, right now, I want to pray for anybody in this room or listening online or watching later who has not yet taken that very difficult first step to surrender, to go all in, to trust you. God, I pray right now that you would speak into them, change their heart, break the hardness, soften them, remove the fear, shut out the enemy. God, they might hear your voice of love and grace and mercy right now. We ask all this in Jesus' name.